All right, well, this morning we'll be looking at three stories from Jesus' life. You've heard them read. The first story from, for today is the final story in a series of five conflict stories between Jesus and the religious leaders. In each of the conflict stories, Jesus makes an important pronouncement that challenges the social, the religious, and the cultural norms of the day. And we, we looked at this the last couple of weeks. As a review, the first of the five stories was Jesus healing the paralytic, remember? And, and saying, I, for, I forgive his sins. And then the, the, second, um, the second story was of Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors. And then there was the fourth story, which we heard last, year, last week, was Jesus' disciples plucking grain, grains of wheat or whatever on the Sabbath day and eating it. And then the fifth story, which we'll look at today, is Jesus healing a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath day. And the third story, right smack dab in the middle, which sheds light on all five of those, was about fasting and about new wineskin paradigm that Jesus was introducing to the world. And Mark purposely links all five of those stories to bring attention to Jesus' confrontation with the scribes, with the religious like authorities of the day. It was, it's to bring attention to his authority and his power, to his claim to be the Son of God, and how many people were calling him the Son of God. The Son of God. And it's interesting to note that after Jesus heals the paralytic in the first story, the crowds are amazed at his work. They're all worked up and they're excited. And after he heals the man with the withered hand in today's story, the Pharisees want to kill him. And they begin to hatch a plan on the Sabbath, nonetheless. And it's ironic, the Sabbath day in which life and God's presence were to be celebrated, it becomes a day when they desire the death of the Son of God. We're going to look at that today. In the three stories we will cover today, we will see there's a situation that begins with Jesus going somewhere, and it's followed by people doing something, so they follow him, they want to do something, and in each situation there's a purpose, there's something about that, uh, that incident that we need to learn from. So in the first story, we're going to see that Jesus enters the synagogue. The people watch him so they can accuse him. The second story, Jesus withdraws from the crowd and the people follow him so that they can touch him. And the third story, Jesus goes up on a mountain and he's challenge, he challenges the religious and withdrew from the crowds. And he, and, uh, sorry, he, he went up the mountain with his disciples and he called them and, and he wants to send them forth. All right, so we're going to see those things today. So we're going to see how he, as the Son of God, challenges the religious, he withdraws from the crowds, and he calls the apostles. And here's this little thing that, you're going to, that I want you to key in on all day long, or all day long, well, all week long, um, but throughout the sermon at least. Um, the Son of God's presence or reorients everyday life. The Son of God's presence reorients everyday life, and we're going to look at that today. So, first point, Jesus challenged the religious Chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. Chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. And again he entered the synagogue. A man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart, and said to, them, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. 
And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. So we see that Jesus enters the synagogue. We're not told whether Jesus was teaching this time or not. He very well could have simply entered and was finding his seat somewhere in the place. And there was a man with a withered hand sitting there in the synagogue as well. My suspicion is that the religious leaders actually planted this guy because Mark reports that they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath or not. Either that or this man was a regular in this particular synagogue, and so the religious leaders planted themselves there to see if Jesus would heal him. Either way, they're there to trap him so that they could accuse him. They wanted him to slip up. They wanted to get him to point to the point where they had him, where they could take him down. These were malicious men. They wanted to destroy him, the text says. There are people in this world who may want to destroy you. They will want to knock you down. They will want to knock you off course. They will want to ruin your reputation. They will want to discourage you from believing, from loving and following Jesus. They will want to silence you. Jesus didn't let the malicious men stop him or change his message or his actions. He was undeterred. What can this say to us? Remain strong in Jesus. Don't let bad people throw you off course. And don't be surprised that there are bad people that will want to throw you off course. It was the sake for Jesus. And Jesus asked the question, he says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to harm, to save a life or to kill? According to the Sabbath rules, one may not straighten a deformed body or set a broken limb. Okay, that was one of the Sabbath rules. Sabbath rules could only be broken if a life was in danger. The man with the withered hand was not in a dangerous situation. His condition was not life-threatening. Therefore, his condition, according to the religious elite and the law, was not an exception to the Sabbath rule. So he should have been left the way he was. I have a bit of sympathy, though very faint, for these religious scribes and Pharisees. In one respect, they're simply trying to uphold the law of God, and they were trying to ensure that the people upheld it too. They wanted God's blessing. They wanted to protect their people from being drawn away from God. And they probably thought Jesus was trying to do that. Unfortunately, they refused to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. Instead, they were blinded by the religious do's and don'ts, the theological correctness, the purity, following laws, segregation from wicked people, and strict ritual following. They were watching Jesus to see what he would do and and see if he would trip up. Jesus' contention with them is that they should have been watching him in faith, believing that he was the Son of God, not watching to trip him up. Following the law was about, always about a matter of the heart, faith and love and forgiveness and mercy, doing good. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, if you want to turn there, you can. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15 to 20, the heart of the law is obedience by loving the Lord. Chapter 30 of Deuteronomy See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. See where Jesus is getting his, his question from? 
I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life blessings. Therefore choose life that you and your offspring may live. Loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land the Lord your God swore to your fathers. True life and true relationship with God was not through stiff religiosity and following a set of rules, but by having a soft heart of love for God and a desire to obey his will. Sin, therefore, is failing to obey God's will, which is to love him with all your heart, as defined by the law. The law was meant to be a guideline for how a redeemed people of God were to live. Israel was already God's chosen people. God had elected Abraham. He had chosen Isaac instead of Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, and then he redeemed the whole nation out of Egypt. After all of this, he gave them the law. And the law was never meant to be a means of becoming a redeemed people. It was a picture of what a redeemed people were to look like because of what God had done in them. People who by faith loved God and loved others. The way one demonstrates love to God is not by following a set of rules, but by doing good, by loving people that God has put into our path. The religious leaders were blinded to this. They couldn't see it. And Jesus upholds and reinforces the law by actually doing good on the Sabbath. Commentator Edwards says this in relation to this story. And we might have a slide. There we go. He says, Where good needs to be done, there can be no neutrality. And failure to do the good is to contribute to the evil. It is thus not simply permissible to heal on the Sabbath, but right to heal on the Sabbath, whether it is lawful or not. After Jesus' question, their silence demonstrates that they disagree with him. There's a disagreement, a confrontation. To them, doing good on the Sabbath was not as important as following the strict rules of the Sabbath. How sad. Jesus looked around at them in anger, it says. Anger is an emotional response to an injustice or to something that is wrong. Jesus was right to be angry. There was something wrong going on. And Jesus was grieved at the hardness of their heart. At the same time that he was angry, he was sorrowful. He grieved a loss. The loss of a relationship with them because of their hard hearts. A lack of love because they were blinded by rules. And a loss of an opportunity to change a life. So Jesus looks around he says, stretch out your hand. Matters of theology, of God's will, <clears throat> of doctrine, of law, 
and grace, of mercy and justice and love and peace and forgiveness cannot be discussed in the abstract. They cannot just be discussed. They must be manifested or displayed in physical reality, in response to God's call and in response to human need. The test of whether your theology or doctrine or understanding See, grace, justice, love, and forgiveness is simple, is genuine or simply theoretical. Head knowledge is how you respond to the weak and the defenseless. Are we blind like the religious or are eyes open to see people as Jesus does? And Jesus helps the man. Regardless of the consequences, and he knew they were going to come, Jesus does what is right but what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Out of love for God, do you stand ready to do good even when the consequences for you would not be favorable? Out of love for God, are you willing to do good regardless of the judgment or ridicule or rejection of others? But let's not overlook the man with the withered hand. He has the opportunity to respond. Will he in faith stretch out his hand or will he in fear of what is going on around him refuse Jesus' offer? we see that he stretched it out. And it's not the size of your faith that matters. It's the exercise of your faith in the person of Jesus that matters. And the man is healed. But what do the Pharisees do? <clears throat> what do the Pharisees do? Jesus had asked if it is lawful on the Sabbath to save a life or to kill it. Jesus knew their test was about more than doing good or harm on the Sabbath. It was about their plot to kill him. Their hearts were so hard, they did not see the evil they were doing was in direct opposition to the nature and the intent of the Sabbath they were trying to keep. The ones who knew all the theology and all the doctrine and all the laws and followed them to a T missed the meaning and the intent altogether. They plotted to kill him on the Sabbath. It is, is it lawful to kill on the Sabbath? The Sabbath day was a day of rest after God had created life. It was a day to celebrate the life he made. And the Sabbath was a day of rest for the Israelites to reflect upon the saving work of God in their lives, rescuing them out of bondage to Egypt. However, the Pharisees were content to let the man continue to suffer on the Sabbath, when healing was available to him. In fact, their hearts were revealed in that they deliberately deliberated murder on the Sabbath. They harbored unlawful murder in their hearts on the Sabbath. They were the ones who actually broke the command, not Jesus. How ironic. And how convicting and appropriate for us today. As a redeemed people, out of love for Jesus, we are to do good and we are to celebrate life and the saving work of Jesus. And we are to act this out in real time with real people in real need. The question is, do we do it? Are our hearts soft enough to see the opportunities that God places in front of us every day? Or are we too preoccupied with trying to stay morally pure, follow the laws, religious or not, just so, so that we pass right by the opportunities God has put in our paths? Years ago, when we headed the P&G to Papua New Guinea to plant the church among a tribal group, there were some that said, don't go there. They don't deserve your help. Or they got 
they got themselves into this predicament. Just leave them alone. Let them get out of it. Years ago, I launched an immigration office to help immigrants comply with the U.S. law. Many were undocumented. I was shocked by how some in the church reacted. They didn't even want to go there in discussing the issue. And that's how they looked at it, as an issue, and failed to see that there were people behind the issue. I heard things like, they broke the law, you shouldn't help them. I refuse to be part of a church that helps illegals. Unless they repent and go back, they don't deserve our help. Many in the church look at issues like this as just issues. Political, religious, cultural issues regarding laws and justice and economics. But so many fail to see that there are human beings behind the issues. The world sees people in these situations as sinful, as evil, as unlawful. They should be shunned. But as Christians, we should see them as Jesus sees them. People who are in need of forgiveness and God's grace, just like the rest of us. Often we miss opportunities to do good and share the good news with those who many consider to be the most open to believing the gospel because we look at the issues instead of the person. Jesus said, stretch out your hand. And he said it on the Sabbath. Jesus challenged, the radically, challenged and radically redefined the heart of the Sabbath and the heart of the Pharisaic laws. The religious needed to repent and believe. Jesus could not be sewn onto the old religious and social systems. Jesus was redefining the old concepts of clean and unclean, association, disassociation, chosen and forsaken. Jesus' presence and his message tears the very fabric of those paradigms to shreds. And Jesus could not be poured into the old system. His presence and authority and all that shatters the confines of the law and traditions. His new covenant, his new community, his new command bursts through and goes beyond the old covenant, the old community, and the old command. New wine needed new wineskins. The Pharisees didn't like it. Not one bit. They preferred the old wineskins. It was more comfortable. It was easier. And they tried to kill him for it. The Son of God's presence reorients everyday life. Our second story, chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus would with the disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him, because the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed so many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. There will be a a map on the screen. But this, this scene in the life of Jesus seems to me to be filled with chaos and stress and lots of decisions. We talked a few weeks ago about how Jesus would minister and then retreat. He would encourage and heal and preach. And then he would withdraw to pray and be encouraged and focus on the Father. Perhaps this is one of those times Jesus was trying to withdraw from the crowds and be with his disciples and debrief these five, like, conflict encounters he just had. The reading in Mark's gospel, it could be reasonably deduced that this was possibly the motive behind Jesus withdrawing. 
However, a great crowd followed him. As you can see on the screen, they followed him from Galilee and Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond Jordan, Tyre and Sidon. Basically, all of Israel were coming to find Jesus. There was really nowhere he could go anymore to be away from them. They were literally coming from every corner of the nation of Israel, and the crowds were getting larger, and the demands were getting bigger. My family and I just traveled five days to get here. Please let us see the healer. Where is Jesus? I need to see him. I've been sick for decades. I need to see him first. But our daughter was born blind. She will never have a normal life unless we see Jesus. I heard that if you just touch him or his garment, you will be healed. I'm just going to try to get through all these people. Where are all these people from anyway? They're not all sick. And I'm just going to touch his shoulder. I hope it works. There was jostling and pushing and shoving and dust flying in the air and loud talking and bargaining and selling of bread and fish and hunting for blankets and lodging, verbal disagreements, exclamations of recognition, shouts of joy as person after person is being healed. And Jesus was beginning to feel that the situation was close to getting out of hand. So he tells his disciples to go get one of their boats. They were fishermen, remember? So that they could climb in the boat and get away from the crowd and sit down for a second and catch their breath. This crowd was going to crush them to death. Mark is not necessarily painting a picture of a happy crowd of 100 people or so on a Sunday afternoon, you know, putting up their lawn chairs in front of Jesus, just waiting to have their turn for, in line with him. This is more like a mob. The word for crush is translated afflict in many other places in the New Testament. It carries the meaning of being compressed, like one compresses grapes for wine. It's to be thronged. And Jesus is in an unsafe place. And they came so that they could touch him. The crowd was crooked into a mob, unruly, unsafe. They, want, they each wanted to touch him and be healed, to hug him, to say thank you, to fist bump, to shake his hand, to high five, to pat his back, to look him in the eye, to hear him say their name. Everyone was thinking of themselves. And very few were thinking of anyone else. They pushed and shoved and jostled and squeezed. Have you ever been in a crowd like that? It can be scary. You are chest to chest, shoulder to shoulder, people get trampled. There's tension in the air. It is a situation ripe for many things to go wrong. Yet somehow Jesus is still healing people. It could be that the 12 were clearing a space, making room, bouncing the unruly, welcoming the elderly. He healed so many that they were pressing around him to touch him. And that word actually means that they fell upon him. The crowds fell upon him. The word pressed means to fall upon. The crowds were falling upon Jesus, falling into his arms, falling all over themselves. They wanted what Jesus could give. It seems that they did not know who he was, just what he could do for them. There was no fear or reverence or acknowledgement. It was focused on themselves. In contrast, it says that the demons fell before him. See that? The demons and unclean spirits knew who Jesus was. They knew their proper place. They fell before him in fear and reverence and obedience, and they prostrated themselves before Jesus and cried out, You are the Son of God. They were wholly undone before the presence of the Son of God. The Son of God's presence reorients everyday life. And Jesus again silences the demons. 
ordering them not to reveal his true identity. Jesus' message was one of repentance and faith. He wanted people to come to him in true faith, acknowledging that he was the son of God, not mimicking the words of a demon. He wanted them to truly believe. Ironically, the demons acknowledged who Jesus was and the crowds only wanted what they could get from him. Humans fell upon him, demons fell before him. In falling upon him, the crowds were turning into a mob. Jesus did not come to turn crowds into an angry mob and lead them to storm the Roman strongholds as the mighty son of God to change Israel's sorry predicament, which is what most of them were hoping. Jesus' ministry was much broader. His ministry was to preach the truth about God the Father to all peoples, encouraging their hearts to repent and believe that he, Jesus, was the Son of God for the forgiveness of sins, a different type of kingdom, a different type of world. And Jesus knows that he's not going to do this on his own. God always separates a people. He elects a group that will be his representatives and fulfill his purposes on the earth. He did it a millennia before with Israel, and he does it again here. And we come to our third story. Verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Cananean and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now Luke records this event and adds a few little details. Luke chapter 6, 12 to 13 says this, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night... He continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. All right, so that's what Luke says. In both accounts, Jesus went up the mountain. This is a definite article specifying a certain mountain. However, we don't know which mountain it is. But the wording in Mark is reminiscent of another man who went up the mountain, Moses. Moses went up on Mount Sinai, and he talked with God face to face. Jesus, according to Luke, went up to pray to God all night. Moses received God's instructions for how the 12 tribes of Israel were to live and act as representatives in the world. Jesus received God's instructions regarding which 12 to choose and how to instruct them to live and act as his representatives in the world. And Jesus called whom he desired. Jesus selected or elected certain men whom he desired and called them to himself. Jesus did not call the religious elite or the politically powerful, the so socially influential. Jesus called sinners and tax collectors and fishermen and no-name common folk. And he appointed, better translated, made. It's the same word used in Mark 1.17 where Jesus calls the first disciples and says, I will make you become fishers of men. It's also the same word that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is what they used back then. It's called the Septuagint. In Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God made the heavens and the earth. Same word, made. 
So Jesus went up on the mountain and he made 12 apostles. Apostles means messengers or sent one. He made them to be his chosen sent ones. And why is this significant? Jesus chose or elected 12 normal men and made them into new creations. He took 12 sinners and made them into his messengers. Sounds like what God did with Israel in the Old Testament. And Jesus named them apostles. This is reminiscent of Genesis as well, where Adam names the animals, remember? In Jesus' day, to name someone meant you had authority or superiority or you loved that person. The authority or master determined the purpose for the thing that he was naming or the person they were naming. Jesus was declaring his authority and lordship over them by naming them. And is also reminiscent of God renaming Jacob Israel. And the number 12 is representative of the 12 tribes of Israel. Mark is subtly pointing out that Jesus is creating a new community, a messianic community, the church. The church is made comprised of sinners saved to form an assembly of Jesus. Jesus is putting his spirit of grace into new wineskins, the church. As we learned last week, the old wineskins of Israel and the law would have not contained this new reality. They would have burst. And it says that they came to him. So he called them and they came to him. They obeyed him. Jesus' authority demands obedience. What was the purpose of him calling them and making them into apostles? It says, so that they might be with him. So that they might be with him. Mark is a master writer. Neither Matthew or Luke include this phrase. But remember whose account this is coming from. It's coming from Peter. Okay, He was there. He was a foul-mouthed, crude, common, calloused hand, smelly fisherman. Can you imagine being him? One minute, you're waist-deep in water, cleaning out seaweed and dead fish from a net, and you're never imagining that your life would amount to much more than this. And then the next day, you have this incredible man of God, the Son of God, choose you to be one of his disciples one of his apostles, one of his sent ones. And he singles you out, actually, as first among equals. You. You've never been first at anything. Your fish were always shorter than your brother's. You were not as good-looking as your brother. You couldn't swing a hammer to save your life. You always lost in the bar fights. Your mother-in-law always got the last word in. Levi, that blasted tax collector, cheated you out of more than his fair share, and now he's with you in the 12. And yet Jesus calls you. And why does he call you? Jesus wants you to be with him. Let that sink in. Jesus wants to be with you. Jesus doesn't just want to forgive you. He doesn't just want to save you from death. He doesn't just want to give you eternal life. He doesn't just want you to preach in his name. He doesn't just want you to cast out demons. He wants you to be with him. Hear me on this. Relationship precedes mission. Presence precedes power. And closeness qualifies for mission. 
First and foremost, Jesus' calling to be his disciple is about being in his presence with him. Jesus' presence in our lives is vital, and it's the vital component to everything else. Before preaching, there is prayer. Before action, there's communication. Before mission, there is relationship. Before going out to spiritual battle against falsehood, there is closeness with the truth. Being with precedes being sent. The Son of God's presence reorients everyday life. He wants to be with you. And number two, so that he might send them. He wanted them to be with him, and he wanted to send them. He sent them to do two things, to preach and to have authority over demons, to preach. He's being sent by God always carries an element of proclaiming divine truth. The apostles were being sent out to continue spreading the message of repentance and belief in Jesus as the Son of God for the forgiveness of sins. The apostles weren't sent out to preach about whatever they wanted. They were to preach and proclaim what they had witnessed regarding the person of Jesus. They were to proclaim what he said and what he did. They were to proclaim repentance from old ways of thinking and believing. And they were to proclaim belief in the arrival of God's kingdom in the person of Jesus Christ. And what better examples and stories to use than their own lives? Jesus chose them and sent them because he wanted to use their stories, these normal folk, these sinners. He wanted to use their stories to demonstrate the power of the gospel in their lives and what it could accomplish in the lives of those that they were sent to reach. Jesus chose you because your story is important. He wants to use your story of how faith in him changed your life for his glory and your salvation. Every one of you is important. And then he sent them to have authority to cast out demons. Jesus is transferring his authority to his apostles. He is empowering them to fight spiritual battles. He is equipping them with truth so they can combat falsehood. The transfer of authority is vital to the success, to the success of the mission. Mark has been establishing Jesus' incredible authority over the past few chapters. He has authority over Satan, over humans, over unclean spirits. He has authority to heal sickness, to cleanse leprosy, to remove paralysis, to forgive sin, to call sinners, to make things new, to determine the Sabbath, to heal on the Sabbath, to silence demons, and to choose his disciples. This same authority is given to Jesus' disciples and to all of us, by the way so that we can stand against spiritual forces. Notice that the disciples are with Jesus and they stand against demons. This has been the epic battle since the beginning of time. In the human dimension, life is not so much a battle between good and evil as it is between truth and falsehood. Human hearts and human minds are the battlefields where the truth of God is at war with the lies of Satan. John 8.44 says this, He, Satan, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his character for he is a liar and the father of lies. 
A demon, Satan's sole purpose is to hinder people from hearing the truth. That God loves them and he sent the son to save them from the tyranny and bondage of sin. They continually tell lies like, lies like this, like life is all about you. Do whatever you want, whatever feels good in the moment. Pleasure is all there is to life. You're not worthy of God's love. There is no God. There is no truth. It's all relative. You don't need to go to church. It's a waste of time. You can learn on your own. I personally think demons are most active on Saturday night and Sunday morning trying to get people from not coming to church to hear the truth. Because we need to hear the truth. We need to interact with one another. We need to encourage one another. It's super important. And the apostles were given authority to cast out demons so the people could hear the truth of the gospel of Jesus without the incessant lies of the enemy in their minds. As we saw in Ephesians a few months ago, our enemy is not each other. It never was, it never will be. We do not fight against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And the first piece of armor that we're to take up is the belt of truth. Truth is vital. That is where the battles fought over truth or falsehood. Preaching and casting out demons go hand in hand, for the spiritual battle for souls is waged in proclaiming the truth of the gospel of Jesus through the authority of Jesus in the powerful name of Jesus. Now, there's a lot we can take away from today's passage. I just talked for a long time, and it was heavy, heavy stuff. I get that. Let me just recap a few things. First and foremost, Jesus' calling to be a follower of him, to be a disciple of him, is about being in his presence. Jesus' presence in our life is the starting point of everything. He wants you to be with him. Being with precedes being sent, precedes, being, precedes doing. As we said earlier, Jesus' presence reorients everyday life. Relationship precedes going out. Presence precedes power. Closeness qualifies for mission. And reorienting our lives means that matters of being a follower of Jesus, of theology, of God's will, of doctrine, of law, of grace, of mercy and justice, and all these good things we talk about, these matters cannot just be just discussed. We can sit over coffee and discuss passionately, which is what we call that's, that's how we talk about arguing. Discuss passionately all these matters for hours on end until we have doctrine. Just so, every jot and tittle. We can talk all day about our relationship with Jesus and establish a list of to-dos and don'ts as safeguards to keep us on track. But the test of whether our theology and our relationship with Jesus, our understanding of mercy and grace and justice and love and forgiveness is genuine or theoretical is how we respond to the weak and defenseless in front of us, our neighbor in front of us. And that is why Jesus came. He did not come to establish another religion that bound people up in do's and don'ts. He came to provide a way for us to enter into a healthy, loving relationship with the God of the universe and give us authority to call others to the same thing. We do this by doing good and sharing the good news with those we come in contact with. The point Jesus made in healing on the Sabbath was that our orthodoxy, which is a big word for our belief, our following his way, must be played out in physical reality. Everyday life. 
in response to our love for God in response to human need. If our belief does not influence our actions, then it is not faith at all. I pray that we are known as people who, like Jesus, live in freedom to love others and the grace to do good to those in need. After all, God chose people like you and me because he wanted to use our stories to demonstrate his power and the power of the gospel. Jesus chose you because your story is important. He wants to use your story of faith in him to change and how he changed your life for his glory and your salvation. So don't be afraid to share it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the stories of Jesus. I thank you that his life wasn't just a bed of roses. It wasn't all just going well for him. But that you in your gospels show us that Jesus was up against conflict and up against persecution and up against people who hated him and wanted him to be destroyed. And yet he stayed true to your calling. He loved you with all his heart and he loved others like himself. Thank you for his good example. God, work that into our hearts and our minds. Change our minds where we need to be changed. Soften our hearts where we need to be softened. God, make us more like Jesus each and every day. Thank you so much for your word. We love you and we love what you've given to us in the person of Jesus. He's our hero. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.